Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to another episode of NJEDA's eConversations podcast. Hi, I am uh, Michelle Bowden, Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer here at EDA, and I am so excited to host this month's eConversations episode to commemorate Black History Month. Um, each February, we celebrate Black History Month, and it serves as, you know, both a celebration and a powerful reminder um, that Black history is American history, and Black culture is American culture, and Black stories are essential to the ongoing story of our state, our faults, our struggles, our progress, and our aspirations. And this time also provides us the opportunity for a fresh reminder to take stock of where barriers still persist and give visibility to the business owners and the organizations that are creating change. So with that in mind, I am so excited to welcome our guests for today's podcast. Each of you bring exceptional insight from your own unique perspectives and of that which is also relevant and important to all New Jerseyans. You'll hear today from Ferlanda Fox Nixon, Chief of Policy and Government Affairs for the African American Chamber of Commerce, Valerie Cofield, Chief Executive Officer of the Eastern Minority Supplier Development Council, or NMSDC for short, uh, Terrence Clark, President and CEO of the New Jersey New York Minority Supplier Diversity Council, and Desmond Hayes, the owner and founder of GeoGreens, an indoor hydroponic farm in Hamilton Township, Mercer County, New Jersey. So welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So, you know, Ferlanda, I, um, I'd like to start with you. You know, your work is so fascinating um, over at the chamber. And, you know, you obviously are a friend. I call uh, the chamber a friend to EDA because we do a lot of things together, a lot of initiatives. As the chief policy and government affairs officer at the African-American Chamber of Commerce, um, Ferlanda drives economic empowerment at both the federal and state level. She also leads broad-based policy engagement and provides insights and recommended strategies to the chamber teams and professionals. And a fun fact is that Ferlanda herself is also an entrepreneur and the editor of Tap Into Denville. So, Ferlanda, question for you. Please, please, if you would, give us a brief overview of what the chamber does and follow that up with, you know, how this pandemic has hit the African-American community particularly hard, especially um, in terms of economic impact. You know, the work of the chamber centers around economically empowering and sustaining our African-American entrepreneurs. And as we move further into recovery mode, I want you to think about in the context of the chamber, what can be done to help our black businesses not be left behind? Well, thank you so much for the question and thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here today. Um, and as you said, our mission is to economically empower and sustain African-American communities through entrepreneurship and capitalistic activities within the state of New Jersey. So we serve more than 800 members and we have more than 10,000 contacts in our database. So among our many goals, we seek to enhance 
our ability to be a critical source of information, inspiration, knowledge, and resources for African-American businesses and communities throughout New Jersey. Our reach extends statewide and nationally via radio, television, and social media platforms. We have a weekly radio show called Empowerment Hour, which has more than 2,000 listeners. We also have a monthly television show, Pathway to Success, which airs on NJTV and njtvonline.org, where we're garnering 1.6 million viewers, and on pbs.org, where we're attracting more than 28 million viewers. So we're proud of our reach and the services and resources that we're providing to um, our Black businesses, 93% of which are solo practitioners and solo entrepreneurs. As far as the impact of this pandemic, what has been exposed throughout these and the disparities that hit uh, the Black community the hardest, right? We've seen it in the healthcare side, but it's also on the business side economically. And issues that existed before the pandemic, they're just even worse. And so I, I would say the biggest issue is access to capital, right? So money, 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 as the old days would have saying. It's all about the money. It's all about the Benjamins. We need money. Access to money, right? We need mm -hmm. to have that process made easier for Black businesses. There's a lot of technical assistance that they need to get through the paperwork, which can be very daunting. There are some resources that they need to actually have in place before they can apply or even think about applying for some of the funding that's available. So I think that that's the biggest issue, and that's certainly what we're hoping to uh, address. We do have an equitable small business initiative where we do some micro lending. And so hopefully people listening will check out our website and take a look at the resources that we have available in that area. So thank you. Thank you. That was great. So, Valerie, I'm going to flip it over to you. Valerie brings over 30 years of experience uh, to her role as the CEO of the Eastern Minority Supplier Development Council which is the South Jersey affiliate of the National Minority Supplier Diversity Council. Um, under Valerie's leadership, the council certifies and connects minority-owned businesses throughout southern New Jersey and the surrounding areas of Pennsylvania and Delaware with, oh, wow, over 1,750 corporate members associated with 23 regional councils across the country. It's a lot of corporations that you all are uh, – you know, service in there. She uses her position and her expertise in business, economic development, and supplier diversity to drive opportunities for ethnic minority businesses in the supply chains of corporate, government, and institutional partners. And uh, another fun fact is that I see that Valerie, she is a lifelong Girl Scouts leader, and she is, for over 10 years, has served on on the Girl Scouts board. She does a lot of work on other boards and committees. And so she brings a, a perspective, I think, from not only uh, within the context of EMSDC, but also in the context of many business um, businesses and uh, government agencies. So I appreciate your insights. I'd love to hear your thoughts 
on ways to increase financial resources for minority and black owned businesses. And what do you think we need to do to amplify these efforts? We just heard Philanda say that it's all about the dollar. We need money. We need to get access to capital to our black businesses. How do you think we what are some ways that we can do that? You know, we've had a grant programs um, through uh, the pandemic. And I think that, you know, it, it was never enough. It could never be enough, right? Because we were all, we were already starting from a point of deficit. So at this point now, as we look, as we move into this recovery stage, right, we're, we're out of, you know, the, the, the belly of now moving into recovery mode. What are some ways that we can, we can do this? How can we increase this access to financial resources? Well, thank you, Michelle, for this opportunity to talk about how we bring more financial resources to our, our, our minority-owned businesses, to our Black-owned businesses. I want to share a statistic so that you understand the impact of our businesses. For the businesses that we support in Southern New Jersey, they contribute $1.1 billion to the overall economy, and they employ close to 3,000 employees. So these are employer-based businesses contributing to the local and statewide economies. They contribute to the tax bases of their local and statewide economies. And so therefore they're having significant impact. The stability of these businesses is critically important to ensuring that these contributions that are being made by these companies are not static, but continue to grow. So you talk about access to capital, and we have to be very mindful about how we create access to capital because we keep throwing money at businesses, but not making sure that they have the tools and the resources embedded inside of their companies to ensure that this money is being used for the purposes of stabilizing and growing these businesses. And so there's different types of money that is available out in the marketplace that needs to be made available. So certainly grants are wonderful. And what we found, you know, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic was that many of our businesses were not recipients of PPP money or grants that were out there because their financial houses weren't in order. So as we look to creating more access to capital, We need to also make sure that our businesses are internally positioned to take advantage of the capital that's out there and, again, to utilize it. And so grants are are excellent resources, but also dollars that can grow, teaching our businesses how to grow the dollars that they secure, those investment dollars that will position them to expand a business, to bring on new equipment, to hire new employees, to diversify so that when we are faced with a situation like a pandemic, we don't lose 40% of Black-owned businesses as a result of a cataclysmic event that happens in our um, society. And so we need to look at what we call angel investing, crowdfunding, Mm -hmm. uh, patient capital, Small change funding. So if there's a business out there that is looking to expand, small change funding is a way of involving the community in owning a piece of that business's expansion in a non-conventional way. So what are the non-conventional ways to create access to capital? In addition, our businesses need to establish banking relationships and not depository only relationships. But who's your advocate inside of the institution? Who's your business banker? 
Who's that person that's going to go to the underwriter? And despite what the underwriter sees in your financial statements, because they understand your business, they understand your growth strategy, they understand your customer, they understand the market that you're working with can be your advocate inside of the institution. That is the difference between having a banking relationship and having a bank. And these are the things that we need to bring to our business owners, because oftentimes we think because we know a teller at the bank that we have a banking relationship. But that teller is not making those final decisions on loan applications. That teller is, again, not being our advocate inside of that institution. So we need to look at strengthening our position with conventional institutions and also exploring those non-conventional investment relationships that are outside in the marketplace. Fascinating. I I think that we also uh, with some of the, um, you know, uh, access to capital questions, Valerie, I think that there uh, exists a need to educate, right, and educate our community, our business owners, um, and to talk to them about some of these creative or, you know, ways or what we think is are creative ways of financing that are, you know, long been implored by other groups. Right. And so Absolutely. I think that, yeah, I think that, you know, this, these are vital nuggets for us. And um, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Um, we're going to now move uh, towards Terrence. Terrence is a, is a, an old friend of mine <laughs> personally, and I've known Terrence for years been in this game for years, right, Terrence? Uh, yeah. I know it. I know Many it. Years. <laughs> Terrence is the president and CEO of the New York, New Jersey Minority uh, Supplier Development Council. Uh, Terrence's organization covers the northern part of the state. So we heard from Valerie Cofield that covers the southern part of the state. Well, Terrence covers the northern part of the state, and he covers New York as well. As the North Jersey affiliate of the NMSDC, the National Minority Supplier Diversity Council, you're hearing me say that, the alphabet soup of of diversity, I say, the council serves as the vital link between that same vital link between corporations and minority business enterprises. They also identify and certify minority businesses and facilitate procurement opportunities between those major purchasing entities and one of over 15,000 NMSDC certified MBE suppliers across the country. So, Terrence, what do you feel are the hurdles that MBEs are still facing? And what should we be doing, particularly here in New Jersey? Well, thank you, Michelle. Uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, for inviting me to this. I think, you know, what we're talking about, you know, we mentioned a lot about capital and access to capital. You know, my thing is access to affordable capital. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of money running around here. It's can you afford the money that's out here? And once you get past grants, you know, there are all different types of ways to finance a business. But if you're getting money at 20% and your profit margin is 10%, that's bad money. Because mm-hmm. you're losing money before you even get, once you get this money. And I think that's one of the bigger things that the access to affordable capital, which is extremely important for the growth and development of a minority business, and specifically a business owned by those of African heritage. Because a lot of times, it's not just the access to affordable capital, it's access to the information about where this affordable capital is. 
And a lot of times, a lot of our brothers and sisters get their information second and third hand. And, you know, you're getting it from somebody who's telling it to you who might have told it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And what we try to do is get people to be a, an ear witness and an eyewitness. In other words, put them in the room when the information is being discussed so they can hear for themselves what the opportunities are and make the best evaluations. You know, Valerie mentioned something very important about the development of a banking relationship, which most businesses do not have, small ones anyway. And that's very important because, as she mentioned, and it's very true, it's more than just going to the bank and saying, you know, I know the brother or sister standing behind there taking my money. Do you know the guy or the gal that's sitting there with the suit and the tie on or dress on that's a, a business development officer? Does he or she know your business? If she or she doesn't know your business, you don't have a banking relationship. If you're not aware of the programs that the state of New Jersey has, then what you need to do is try to connect yourself with people who are, such as the Chamber of Commerce that Landa talked about earlier. It's all about getting information. And it's about then being able to evaluate where that information can take you as far as the growth and development of your business. Where we always have had problems, as I mentioned, is getting good information. Because to me, bad I'd rather have no information than bad information. And most folks that look like all of us get bad information because we don't get information from the source. We get it from somebody who then tells you what the source says. So you're not getting information, you're getting interpretation. We need information. If we got we can get more information out, people can be able to evaluate what's going on. I think that plus one other thing, and the other thing is working together, not working against each other, not, hey, you made it, and I'm making sure you don't make it. It's determining, hey, if I don't have a lot of capacity, but maybe another business has capacity, maybe we go after business together. We don't have to be in business together forever, but for a contract opportunity, maybe that's the thing we need to look at. We need to be able to build our capacity so that when these contract opportunities come up, we can go after them from a standpoint of doing the work and also a standpoint of getting the financing necessary to do the work. And, you know, I, I have a, there was a song years ago that's dating myself. But anyway, it's 10% of something beats 100% of nothing. Mm-hmm. I think more of us got to look at it from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, Terrence. So, I, and, and Valerie, you can chime back in here, too. So from a standpoint of teaming and partnering, do you feel that we should be looking to formally establish those those relationships for Linda, too, you know, even through the chamber? Do you feel that there is a need that exists for us to orchestrate that, you know, not to let that just organically or magically happen, but to pull folks together in that regard? Absolutely. So what we have to stop believing is that all business happens organically. It doesn't. You you can look at the pharmaceutical company. People don't realize pharmaceutical companies came together, worked in partnership with each other to develop vaccines and cures, medications. They do it all the time. They joint venture. They figure out how to strategically partner in order to gain marketplace advantage. We need to do the same thing. We need to help our businesses understand 
that organic growth, while is not the fastest way to scale a business and is not the fastest way to build capacity, sometimes you don't have the resources in-house to pursue a contract independently. So now you look to your to a strategic partner that will help you scale and bring on those gap services that you need in order to pursue an opportunity. So we absolutely should be in the business of not only helping gain access to opportunity, but oftentimes creating pathways to partnerships. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, what I just wanted to add on to that is everyone's familiar with the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, John John Harmon, the founder, president, and CEO of the African-American Chamber of Commerce of New Jersey, he likes to say, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And so you have to develop those strategic networking relationships that are meaningful so that people feel that they know you, they know your work ethic, they know your talent and your expertise so that they're going to want to do business with you and they're going to want to refer business to you. Very good. Now we are going to go around the proverbial table to Desmond Hayes, still our entrepreneur extraordinaire. (laughs) Desmond is the owner and founder of GeoGreens, an indoor hydroponics farm located in Hamilton Township. That's Mercer County, New Jersey. Desmond began experimenting with hydroponics after encountering various indoor and outdoor urban city farms, both in and around New York City, and realizing its untapped potential to service different markets and climate areas that are continually changing. With population on the rise, hydroponics was Desmond's opportunity to have a direct influence on our food and water, land use, and deforestation and our carbon footprint. So Desmond, thank you so much for joining us today. You do have quite an amazing entrepreneurial story with degrees in architecture, civil engineering, and environmental science. Yeah, I do believe you found your calling, brother. You know, first, please tell us why you decided to start a farming business. You know what? I wanted to, one, thank you for having me and invite me on the podcast. Definitely appreciate it. And I think I, I can talk more about that by like going through or going into some each point that, you know, everyone else on the podcast, you know, spoke about in terms of, you know, one, going down with, uh, you know, just having quality information. Uh, you know, I, I got into, you know, the farming side of it because I'm ultimately, I'm an environmental guy and a health health guy as well across the board. You know, one main area I got into was something called microgreens, which, you know, for everyone that, that's not familiar with it, microgreens are those little pieces of garnishes when you have a great dish in front of you out to dinner that ultimately everybody always pushes to the side and doesn't bother to eat. Those are 40% healthier than that big bowl of salad that you're about to consume. A lot of people aren't familiar with that, especially a lot of people of color don't know that. So when I have my tours, my presentations, I always lead with that, especially with people of color and black and brown, to let them know you really should eat that because that's much more healthier than what you're going to consume, you know, a couple minutes after the fact. So I want to give, you know, quality information to, uh, you know, the people that, that need it the most, you know, starting with microgreens. And that's why I have, you know, tours. 
and working with different agencies and uh, groups and schools to get them in my facility to, you know, talk to them more about healthy eat, healthier eating, microgreens, growing indoors, uh, you know, just hydroponics in general. The other misrepresentation that a lot of, uh, you know, black and brown or you know, a lot of people in general seem to, uh, seem to think they understand is the, the stamp of organic. When I have several tours in here, you know, I've had, my door has been open since about November, and I've had anywhere between 50 tours or so, and I always, again, lead with, do you know what the organics are? And one of their first, you know, answers is that's, that's the best food, right? And I always had to say no. That's actually less, it's just less pesticides. That does not mean no pesticides. In my facility, I don't have pesticides. I'm growing completely indoors. Everything is automated. Everything is under my control, meaning my iPad is basically my lifeline. Everything is controlled from lights to timing to pumps to everything you can think of that the plant needs through its germination, through, through its growing cycle, directly from my iPad. So I like to let everybody know this is another way of modernized, quote-unquote, cooler side of farming with new generations that are starting to come up that just, you know, just don't understand or, understand or really know where their food comes from versus just, just seeing it in front of them and just consuming it. So, again, you know, going, I believe it was Terrence that said it, going back and just giving that vital information to people that need it. The, one of the constraints or issues is that we have so many types of generations going on right now, coming, leaving and going, unfortunately, that you have so many different types of habits, so many backgrounds, so many cons so many different beliefs and ideals that, you know, people don't, they just don't know what to eat, how to eat it, what's healthier, or all those types of things. And then you throw in the, the fact that we're in a technological era where everything is convenient, everything is fast, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, get it to my, get it to me quickly. Mm -hmm. And again, that just adds more to the fact that people just aren't getting that information that they should be getting. So that's another reason why uh, I have people here at tours. I promote different types of recipes and things like that on my website to just continue to feed that information out as much as I possibly can. The other thing was, uh, you know, who you know. When I decided to take this leap of faith, you know, during, during the pandemic, I made sure that everybody at EDA knew who I was and that who Geo Greens is. <laughs> so I have about 40 contacts in my phone right now at EDA employers, probably bothering them every once in a while, but just, just shooting a little message out there, just saying how you're doing or, you know, Merry Christmas or things like that, just to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm here. Any, anything I can do as a resource, anywhere I can help you guys, please let me know. And that's why I want to say I'm, I'm helping towards their food desert program right now. Whereas, you know, one of the one of the other things that I'm speaking more about, specifically on the food desert program, is, you know, while NEDA has done a great job with all the, you know, data research and control points and everything like that, being a minority and being in different minority communities, if you don't tell us how we can eat the food, why we should purchase this type of food, it's not going to change. It's going to be that vicious cycle. For example, I'm in Mercer County, as you said, in Hamilton. The closest supermarket is 20 minutes away, and it's a Whole Foods. As a minority, we're not driving 20 minutes away to a Whole Foods to get a marked-up piece of produce. That's just not how we think. That's not how a lot of people think, but specifically minorities. We'll just go to a bodega or a Wawa or uh, a Walmart, none of which are known for their healthy produce. So you interject me into uh, you know, a food and security area. That's why I wanted to make sure that my model can work here so that ultimately I can start expanding to other food insecure areas and address the issue that way. 
you know, I, I applaud the other farmers and operators of what they're doing in terms of how much produce they're pumping out. The issue is that while they talk about, you know, starvation and hunger and food insecurity, they're missing that mark. Because that doesn't exist everywhere. It exists in the areas if you actually look into them a lot closer and you'll know exactly where they are. So they're pumping produce in Whole Foods or Sprouts. But again, it comes down to accessibility and availability. Minorities, again, aren't going to those locations and getting what they deserve. So that's why I'm working more of a, I say, hyper-local um, uh, agenda where I'm working, again, with having tours within the community, just trying to get the word out and having people come up here and understand what it is. I have a partnership with an assisted living facility where I'm supplying produce to, to our seniors. I don't want to forget about our seniors. I'm working within schools to try to uh, increase their curriculum. And I've been reached out to a couple of schools ever since uh, you know, my door is open, and some have reached out to me, I've reached out to them, whereas we're trying to introduce this more into their curriculum so kids, again, can see how growing is done, so they can see the actual process. You know, that, that's in the works. Um, I'm also working with, uh, you know, a, a distributor, a local distributor, that works within, you know, different public sectors as well, so again, to get the produce. What I've seen was, you know, trying to get the supply schools directly, there's a lot of bureaucratic infrastructure, there's a lot of things and programs in place to really get in there. So I decided just to pivot and say, okay, I'll use this distributor as a third person to really get the produce where it needs to get to. So I just pivoted instead of just completely abandoning the idea 100%. And then you have local supermarkets, not, not your chains, not your Whole Foods, not your shop rights, local supermarkets where I know communities are going to go to. And I was extremely fortunate and lucky enough yesterday where very unexpectedly a supermarket with an area reached out to me. He saw um, one of my interviews on Channel 6 last week, and we sat down. Within five minutes, he was like, hey, I want everything. And I said, okay. I wasn't expecting that. I'm extremely grateful. Basically saying, hey, when can we get started? When can we go? I said, you got to give me at least a, a month so I can start growing yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. And then he went into, I, I want your produce. I want your manufactured products. And I said, all right, you got to slow down a little bit. I still Let me get back to the office, put the numbers together, and I can put all this together on paper, and we can finalize it and get this going. So that was a, a major victory for me as well. And then, you know, the last one is, you know, culinary and catering. While that, that doesn't exactly align with this, it is still local and it's getting healthier produce to the people that need it the most within the area. So each one of these avenues, each one of these markets, I came into the industry wanting to pursue because these were areas that I saw was untapped markets and people were not getting it to where they needed it to. And again, lucky enough, I've been able to get every single one, a partner within every single one of them. And now I'm actually in the point where I will be starting to look for some additional capital because I have a lot of demand and I have to fulfill and satisfy the demand. So that goes back to the young, the, the lady a little while ago with partnerships. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been, I've been at this not even for a year yet, and I've been partnering or reaching out, or people have been reaching out to me through LinkedIn or just reading books and just, just keeping my ear to the streets, saying, "Hey, I'm here. Let's partner up together. Let's see what I can do for you, and, and vice versa." So that that just that connection just continues to grow. So that as I'm growing. That partner, that partner is growing, and a partnership is growing. So I, I don't lose that relationship. And then, if nothing does, you know, come to fruition there, it's still a connection. It's still something that ultimately I may be able to go back to, or they can come back to me 
if they need it as the resources. So I'm, you know, I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm just trying to stick within the mission that we have, is, is, which is getting out their produce to the people that need it the most. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Desmond. So I will say this, that, you know, we just we we never have enough time to to get want to get into because all of you, as I knew, would bring uh, your own unique perspective. And, you know, from your corner of the world, I have one last question that I'd like to put out there to all of you, especially given that this is Black History Month with still so much work left to do. But with acknowledgement of the strides that we have made since the civil rights movement, do you feel that we still need specificity in terms of advocacy with all of your groups? You know, I know you're all going to say yes. Of course, that's an easy answer. But I want you to tell I want you to speak to why. Why do we still need you? advocacy groups. And Desmond, I want you to start because from a business owner's perspective, I want to hear you, what your feeling is on that. I, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I definitely say yes, we do, because I know they, they play a pivotal part and, uh, you know, earlier on in the business. I would say specifically to, you know, either help, you know, businesses, you know, as they have an idea and they may be pre-revenue, taking it to the next level, or to unfortunately and ultimately weed out those that may not be ready for what they're about to get themselves into. I've been around several different types, several minorities and saying, oh, I'm going to open my business. I'm going to do this. And I, I don't mean it in a derogatory way. And I'll be like, really? You? You, you think you can, you're ready to handle the grind of running a business? Because it's a grind. You're going to start out with it's just you because I'm doing all this you know, just me at this point in time. I'm going to start hiring employees, but it's a grind where, you know, 15, 18 hours a day. That's that's not a lie. That's not, you know, what entrepreneurs out there say. And it's it's not a fad. It, and it shouldn't be treated as a fad where a lot of this generation thinks, oh, I'm just going to open a company and I'm going to be set and I'm going to be straight. No, that's that's not how things go, especially for minorities. Majority of us aren't born into money or anything like that. So we have to work extremely hard to get to where we want to get to. You know, on the flip side of it, the ones that have, you know, been able to benefit it, you know, like myself, it's, it's been definitely helpful, you know, joining certain chambers, different organizations to whereas it puts me in front of other different organizations and different meetings so when I'm able to create these partnerships and see what type of capital is out there available, whether or not I, I'm approved for it or not, it still puts me in, in a position that I would not have been had I not joined those organizations. So. I think it's, it's, it's a twofold answer. Thank you. Thank you. Valerie, your thoughts? So you're right. I'm going to say absolutely. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to also I'm going to I'm going to say absolutely for two reasons. Number one, I love what Desmond said about not only assisting those businesses that are already established and growing, but also helping to level set those businesses that have an idea, but they're not ready to go to market because that's also critically important. That impacts other businesses when you have companies that are not quite ready to go to market and don't understand a uh, path that they're about to embark on. So, Desmond, I appreciate that coming from another entrepreneur and being able to, to, to share that viewpoint. There's a recent impact study that came out, and it said, looking at where we are right now, it will take 333 years to close the wealth gap between white entrepreneurs and minority entrepreneurs. 
I don't know about any of you, but 333 years is not time I have. And because we understand that entrepreneurship is about ownership and ownership is about building wealth. And we understand that we are already behind the eight ball when it comes to building wealth inside of our communities. The need for advocacy organizations to number one, sound the alarm. Number two, have a plan of action to help put out this fire that we're currently in. And then number three, to stabilize and position the businesses that are coming into the marketplace is even more urgent than it was in 1972 when the NMSDC was created, who was celebrating 50 years. 50 years later, although we've made strides, the strides that we have made have not begun to scratch the surface of the work that needs to be done. So while advocacy organizations like ourselves are still needed, it is now time for us to take a different role and position in the marketplace and really focus on building wealth, not so much on certification. Certification is a data point, but how are we positioning our businesses? How are we helping them grow? How are we getting them access to capital? How are we helping them strategically align in the marketplace? How are we helping them assess the marketplace for the next opportunities? How are we helping them to be future forward so that we close this racial wealth gap when it comes to entrepreneurship and business. Thank you, Valerie. Terrence, please. Same uh, question. You know, certainly, you know, as as was said, you know, we certainly uh, need advocacy organizations. But I look at it, the things that have been said, plus this, you know, there's still, you know, preconceived notions about businesses owned by people of color. You know, when you're dealing with large corporations, you're dealing with banks, you're you're primarily dealing with people who are not people of color, they're Caucasian. And there are viewpoints that they have that have not changed. In fact, quite frankly, you know, the politics of this country have kind of brought some of these viewpoints that supposedly disappeared and they never actually disappeared. But they brought them back to the forefront and will probably bring them back further to the forefront, depending on how this Congress turns in uh, November and how this presidential election turns two years from now. So I think that you've got to, we have to continuously deal with the fact that this is not an anomaly, this is for real. This is who you're dealing with. And when you deal with companies, you're dealing with people. And if people look at somebody a certain way, I don't care how many laws they have. If I don't like it, I don't like it. And I'll figure out a way to deal with getting around the laws. So having companies that are going to continually voice support for businesses that are owned by people of color is extraordinarily important, especially in this year and the years going forward. We're trying to determine if this whole diversity and inclusion and equity thing is a moment or a movement. Right now, it's a moment. And it's a moment that many of these companies came to it because of the death and murder of George Floyd. Now we're trying to find out if they're for real or not. So the advocacy companies are important. In that fact. Great point. Great, great point. Okay, Fernanda, we're going to uh, leave the last word for you. And how do you feel about the importance of advocacy groups and if they're still relevant today? Unfortunately, they are still relevant today. I want to give an example of advocacy that our chamber just recently embarked upon for a category of members in the cannabis industry, right? So We have Black-owned businesses trying to get their cannabis licensing here in New Jersey, and we found out that of the 56 applicants, 
only one person is black and there's supposed to be this social equity component to awarding licenses. And so it's up to organizations like ours to sound the alarm to do it sooner rather than later because there are a limited number of licenses, right? And so once they're gone, they're gone. And so to amplify that, we did it at the state level and many of you may have seen uh, John Harmon on Al Sharpton's Politics Nation uh, this past Saturday. So we've elevated it to the national level. And you don't do that as a single person, right? As one solo person or two people trying to uh, advocate that issue. It's really with organizations like ours who have the platform to advocate on behalf of larger numbers uh, of people. And then I think the last thing that I want to say is that, unfortunately, the more things change, the more they remain the same. And if you look at the news clips from 2021, 2022, they don't look that much different from 1963, 1964. And uh, so we have to continue to be that voice uh, for our people and individually it's hard to have that conversation because in this country, conversations about race, it's very uncomfortable. People don't want to be made uncomfortable, but organizations like ours exist <laughs> to, you know, push the envelope. We're, we're still very much needed. Still needed, huh? Okay. Well, I tell you, this was a fascinating uh, conversation and, you know, I wish we had several hours to continue. I want to thank each and every one of you, Terrence, Ferlanda, Valerie, Desmond, you um, all being brilliant in your own right. You brought uh, perspectives to the conversation that I said in the beginning should be important to all New Jerseyans. I want to wish you all a, a very happy and wonderful Black History Month. Uh, E-Conversations will be back for another episode. But in the meantime, I think this one was pretty, pretty darn good. Thank you so much to all of you.